Parts 8, 9, and 10 of The Dunwich Horror by H. P. Lovecraft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 8 In the meantime, a quieter, yet even more spiritually poignant phase of the horror had been blackly unwinding itself behind the closed doors of a shelf-lined room in Orkham. The curious manuscript record or diary of Wilbur Watley, delivered to Miskatonic University for translation, had caused much worry and bafflement among the experts in languages, both ancient and modern. Its very alphabet, notwithstanding a general resemblance to the heavily shaded Arabic used in Mesopotamia, being absolutely unknown to any available authority. The final conclusion of the linguists was that the text represented an artificial alphabet, given the effect of a cipher, though none of the usual methods of cryptographic solutions seemed to furnish any clue, even when applied on the basis of every tongue the writer might conceivably have used. The ancient books, taken from Watley's quarters, while absorbingly interesting, and in several cases promising to open up new and terrible lines of research among philosophers and men of science, were of no assistance whatever in this matter. One of them, a heavy tome with an iron clasp, was in another unknown alphabet, this one of a very different caste, and resembling Sanskrit more than anything else. The old ledger was at length given wholly into the charge of Dr. Armitage, both because of his peculiar interest in the Watley matter and because of his wide linguistic learning and skill in the mystical formulae of antiquity and the Middle Ages. Armitage had an idea that the alphabet might be something esoterically used by certain forbidden cults which have come down from old times and which have inherited many forms and traditions from the wizards of the Saracenic world. That question, however, he did not deem vital, since it would be unnecessary to know the origin of the symbols if, as he suspected, they were used as a cipher in a modern language. It was his belief that, considering the great amount of text involved, the writer would scarcely have wished the trouble of using another speech than his own, save perhaps in certain special formulae and incantations. Accordingly, he attacked the manuscript with the preliminary assumption that the bulk of it was in English. Dr. Armitage knew, from the repeated failures of his colleagues, that the riddle was a deep and complex one, and that no simple mode of solution would merit even a trial. All through late August he fortified himself with the massed lore of cryptography, drawing upon the fullest resources of his own library, and waiting night after night amid the arcana of Trithemius's Polygraphia, Giambattista Porta's De Furtivis Literarum Notis, De Vignere's Traite des Chiffres, Falconer's Cryptomenaisis Patefacta, Davies' and Thickness's eighteenth-century treatises, and such modern authorities as Blair, von Martin, and Kluber's Cryptographic. He interspersed his study of the books with attacks on the manuscript itself, and in time became convinced that he had to deal with one of those subtlest and most ingenious of cryptograms, in which case 
many separate lists of corresponding letters are arranged like the multiplication table and the message built up with arbitrary keywords known only to the initiated the older authorities seemed rather more helpful than the newer ones and armitage concluded that the code of the manuscript was one of great antiquity no doubt handed down through a long line of mystical experimenters several times he seemed near daylight only to be set back by some unforeseen obstacle then as september approached the clouds began to clear certain letters as used in certain parts of the manuscript emerged definitely and unmistakably and it became obvious that the text was indeed in english on the evening of september second the last major barrier gave way and dr armitage read for the first time a continuous passage of wilbur Watley's annals it was in truth a diary as all had thought and it was couched in a style clearly showing the mixed occult erudition and general illiteracy of the strange being who wrote it almost the first long passage that armitage deciphered an entry dated november twenty sixth nineteen sixteen proved highly startling and disquieting it was written he remembered by a child of three and a half who looked like a lad of twelve or thirteen Today learned the Aklo for the Sabaoth. It ran, which did not like, it being answerable from the hill and not from the air. That upstairs more ahead of me than I had thought it would be, and is not like to have much earth brain. Shot Elam Hutchkins collie Jack when he went to bite me, and Elam says he would kill me if he dast. I guess he won't. Grandfather kept me saying the Deho formula last night and I think I saw the inner city at the two magnetic poles. I shall go to those poles when the earth is cleared off. If I can't break through with the Dehohana formula when I commit it. They from the air told me at Sabat that it will be years before I can clear off the earth, and I guess Grandfather will be dead then, so I will have to learn all the angles of the plains and all the formulas between the Yar and the Ngara. They from outside will help, but they cannot take body without human blood. That upstairs looks it will have the right cast. I can see it a little when I make Yorish sign or blow the powder of Ibn Ghazi at it. And it is near like them at Maeve on the hill the other face may wear off some i wonder how i shall look when the earth is cleared and there are no earth beings on it he that came with the aklo sabaoth said i may be transfigured there being much of outside to work on morning found dr armitage in a cold sweat of terror and a frenzy of wakeful concentration he had not left the manuscript all night but sat at his table under the electric light turning page after page with shaking hands as fast as he could decipher the cryptic text he had nervously telephoned his wife he would not be home and when she brought him a breakfast from the house he could scarcely dispose of a mouthful all that day he read on now and then halted maddeningly as a reapplication of the complex key became necessary lunch and dinner were brought him but he ate only the smallest fraction of either 
Toward the middle of the night he drowsed off in his chair, but soon woke out of a tangle of nightmares almost as hideous as the truths and menaces to man's existence that he had uncovered. On the morning of September 4th, Professor Rice and Dr. Morgan insisted on seeing him for a while, and departed trembling and ashen gray. That evening he went to bed, but slept only fitfully. Wednesday, the next day, he was back at the manuscript, and began to take copious notes, both from the current sections and from those he had already deciphered. In the small hours of that night he slept a little in an easy chair in his office, but was at the manuscript again before dawn. Some time before noon his physician, Dr. Hartwell, called to see him and insisted that he cease work. He refused, intimating that it was of the most vital importance for him to complete the reading of the diary and promising an explanation in due course of time. That evening, just as twilight fell, he finished his terrible perusal and sank back exhausted. His wife, bringing him dinner, found him in a half-comatose state, but he was conscious enough to warn her off with a sharp cry when he saw her eyes wander toward the notes he had taken. Weakly rising, he gathered up the scribbled papers and sealed them all in a great envelope, which he immediately placed in his inside coat pocket. He had sufficient strength to get home, but was so clearly in need of medical aid that Dr. Hartwell was summoned at once. As the doctor put him to bed, he could only mutter over and over again, "'But what in God's name can we do?' Dr. Armitage slept, but he was partly delirious the next day. He made no explanations to Hartwell, but in his calmer moments spoke of the imperative need of a long conference with Rice and Morgan. His wilder wonderings were very startling indeed, including frantic appeals that something in a boarded-up farmhouse be destroyed, and fantastic references to some plan for the extirpation of the entire human race and all animal and vegetable life from the earth by some terrible elder race of beings from another dimension. He would shout that the world was in danger, since the elder things wished to strip it and drag it away from the solar system and cosmos of matter into some other plane or phase of entity from which it had once fallen vigintillions of eons ago. At other times he would call for the dreaded Necronomicon and the Daemonolotrea of Remigius, in which he seemed hopeful of finding some formula to check the peril he conjured up. "'Stop them! Stop them!' he would shout. Those Wattleys meant to let them in, and the worst of all is left. Tell Rice and Morgan we must do something. It's a blind business, but I know how to make the powder. It hasn't been fed since the 2nd of August, when Wilbur came here to his death, and at that rate... But Armitage had a sound physique despite his seventy-three years, and slept off his disorder that night without developing any real fever. He woke late Friday, clear of head, though sober, with a gnawing fear and tremendous sense of responsibility. Saturday afternoon he felt able to go over to the library and summon Rice and Morgan for a conference, and the rest of the day and evening the three men tortured their brains in the wildest speculation and the most desperate debate. 
strange and terrible books were drawn voluminously from the stack shelves and from secure places of storage and diagrams and formulae were copied with feverish haste and in bewildering abundance of skepticism there was none all three had seen the body of wilbur Watley as it lay on the floor in a room of that very building and after that not one of them could feel even slightly inclined to treat the diary as a madman's ravings opinions were divided as to notifying the massachusetts state police and the negative finally won there were things involved which simply could not be believed by those who had not seen a sample as indeed was made clear during certain subsequent investigations late at night the conference disbanded without having developed a definite plan but all day sunday armitage was busy comparing formulae and mixing chemicals obtained from the college laboratory the more he reflected on the hellish diary the more he was inclined to doubt the efficacy of any material agent in stamping out the entity which wilbur Watley had left behind him the earth-threatening entity which unknown to him was to burst forth in a few hours and become the memorable dunwich horror monday was a repetition of sunday with dr armitage for the task in hand required an infinity of research and experiment further consultations of the monstrous diary brought about various changes of plan and he knew that even in the end a large amount of uncertainty must remain by tuesday he had a definite line of action mapped out and believed he would try a trip to dunwich within a week then on wednesday the great shock came tucked obscurely away in a corner of the arkham advertiser was a facetious little item from the associated press telling what a record-breaking monster the bootleg whiskey of dunwich had raised up armitage half stunned could only telephone for rice and morgan far into the night they discussed and the next day was a whirlwind of preparation on the part of them all armitage knew he would be meddling with terrible powers yet saw that there was no other way to annul the deeper and more malign meddling which others had done before him part nine friday morning armitage rice and morgan set out by motor for dunwich arriving at the village about one in the afternoon the day was pleasant but even in the brightest sunlight a kind of queer dread and portent seemed to hover about the strangely domed hills and the deep shadowy ravines of the stricken region now and then on some mountain top a gaunt circle of stones could be glimpsed against the sky from the air of hushed fright at osborne's store they knew something hideous had happened and soon learned of the annihilation of the elmer fry house and family throughout that afternoon they rode around dunwich questioning the natives concerning all that had occurred and seeing for themselves with rising pangs of horror the dread fry ruins with their lingering traces of the tarry stickiness the blasphemous tracks in the fry yard the wounded seth bishop cattle and the enormous swathes of disturbed vegetation in various places the trail up and down sentinel hill seemed to armitage of almost cataclysmic significance 
and he looked long at the sinister altar-like stone on the summit. At length the visitors, apprised of a party of state police which had come from Aylesbury that morning in response to the first telephone reports of the Fry tragedy, decided to seek out the officers and compare notes as far as practicable. This, however, they found more easily planned than performed, since no sign of the party could be found in any direction. There had been five of them in a car, but now the car stood empty near the ruins of the Fry Yard. The natives, all of whom had talked with the policemen, seemed at first as perplexed as Armitage and his companions. Then old Sam Hutchings thought of something and turned pale, nudging Fred Farr and pointing to the dank, deep hollow that yawned close by. "'God!' he gasped. "'I telled him not to go down into the glen, and I never thought nobody'd do it with them tracks and that smell and the whippoorwills a-screeching down there in the dark noonday." A cold shudder ran through natives and visitors alike, and every ear seemed strained in a kind of instinctive unconscious listening. Armitage, now that he had actually come upon the horror and its monstrous work, trembled with a responsibility he felt to be his. Night would soon fall, and it was then that the mountainous blasphemy lumbered upon its eldritch course. Negotium perambulans in tenebris. The old librarian rehearsed the formula he had memorized, and clutched the paper containing the alternate ones he had not memorized. He saw that his electric flashlight was in working order. Rice beside him took from a valise a metal sprayer of the sort used in combating insects, whilst Morgan uncased the big-game rifle on which he relied despite his colleague's warnings that no material weapon would be of help. Armitage, having read the hideous diary, knew painfully well what kind of a manifestation to expect but he did not add to the fright of the Dunwich people by giving any hints or clues. He hoped that it might be conquered without any revelation to the world of the monstrous thing it had escaped. As the shadows gathered, the natives commenced to disperse homeward, anxious to bar themselves indoors despite the present evidence that all human locks and bolts were useless before a force that could bend trees and crush houses when it chose. They shook their heads at the visitor's plan to stand guard at the Fry ruins near the glen, and as they left had little expectancy of ever seeing the watchers again. There were rumblings under the hills that night, and the whippoorwills piped threateningly. Once in a while a wind sweeping up out of cold spring glen would bring a touch of ineffable fetter to the heavy night air. Such a fetter as all three of the watchers had smelled once before, when they stood above a dying thing that had passed for fifteen years and a half as a human being. But the looked-for terror did not appear. Whatever was down there in the glen was biding its time, and Armitage told his colleagues it would be suicidal to try to attack it in the dark. Morning came wanly, and the night sounds ceased. It was a gray, bleak day, with now and then a drizzle of rain, and heavier and heavier clouds seemed to be piling themselves up beyond the hills to the northwest. The men from Arkham were undecided what to do. 
seeking shelter from the increasing rainfall beneath one of the few undestroyed fry outbuildings they debated the wisdom of waiting or of taking the aggressive and going down into the glen in quest of their nameless monstrous quarry the downpour waxed in heaviness and distant peals of thunder sounded from far horizons sheet lightning shimmered and then a forky bolt flashed near at hand as if descending into the accursed glen itself the sky grew very dark and the watchers hoped that the storm would prove a short sharp one followed by clear weather it was still gruesomely dark when not much over an hour later a confused babble of voices sounded down the road another moment brought to view a frightened group of more than a dozen men running shouting and even whimpering hysterically someone in the lead began sobbing out words and the arkham men started violently when those words developed a coherent form oh my god my god the voice choked out it's a goin again and this time by day it's about uh, it's about a movin this very minute and only the lord knows when it'll be on us all the speaker panted into silence but another took up his message nigh on an hour ago zeb watley here heard the phone a ringin and it was miss corey george's wife that lives down by the junction she says the hired boy luther was out drivin in the cows from the storm out of the big bolt when he sees all the trees abandoned at the mouth of the glen opposite side to this and smelt the same awful smell like he smelt when he found the big tracks last monday morning and she says he says there was a swishing lapping sound uh, more nor what the bending trees or bushes could make and all of a sudden uh, the trees along the road began to get pushed one side and they was a awful stomping and splashing in the mud but mind ye luther he didn't see nothing at all only just the bending trees and underbrush then far ahead where bishop brooks goes under the road he heard a awful creaking and straining on the bridge and he could tell the sound was a wood a startin to crack and split and all the whiles he never see a thing only them trees and, and bushes a bendin and when the swishing sound got very far off uh, on the road toward wizard watley's and, and sentinel hill luther he had the guts to step up where he heard it fust and look at the ground it was all mud and water and the sky was dark and the rain was wiping out all tracks about as fast as could be but beginning at the glen mouth where the trees bed moved there was still some of them awful prints as big as barrels like he seen monday at this point the first excited speaker interrupted and that ain't the trouble now that was only the start zeb here was calling folks up and everybody was a listening in when a call from seth bishops cut in his housekeeper sally was carrying on fit to kill she just seed the trees abending beside the road and said there was a, a kind of mushy sound uh, like an elephant puffing and, and treading a heading for the house then she up and spoke sudden of a fearful smell and says her boy chancy was a screamin as how it was just like what he smelt up at the Watley's ruins Monday morning, and the dogs was all barkin' and whinin' awful. And then she let out a terrible yell, and says the shed down the road had just caved in like the storm had blowed it over, only the wind wasn't strong enough to do that. 
Everybody was a-listening, and you could hear lots of folks on the wire a-gasping. All at once, Sally, she yelled again, and says the front yard picket fence bed just crumpled up, though there weren't no sign of what done it. Then everybody on the line could hear Chancy and old Seth Bishop a-yelling, too, and Sally was shrieking about something heavy had struck the house, not lightning or nothing, but something heavy again the front that kept a-launching itself again and again, though you couldn't see nothing out the front windows, and then, and then— Lines of fright deepened on every face, and Armitage, shaken as he was, had barely poise enough to prompt the speaker. And and then Sally, she yelled out, Oh, help, the house is a-caving in. And on the wire we could hear a terrible crashing and a whole flock a-screaming, just like when Elmer Fry's place was took, only was. The man paused, and another of the crowd spoke. That's all. Not a sound nor squeak over the phone or to that. Just still-like. We that heard it got out fords and wagons and rounded up as many able-bodied men folks as we could get at Corey's place, and come up here to see what you thought best to do. Uh, not but what I think it's the large judgment for our inequities that no mortal can ever set aside. Armitage saw that the time for positive action had come, and spoke decisively to the faltering group of frightened rustics. We must follow it, boys. He made his voice as reassuring as possible. I believe there's a chance of putting it out of business. You men know that those Watleys were wizards. Well, this thing is a thing of wizardry, and must be put down by the same means. I've seen Wilbur Watley's diary and read some of the strange old books he used to read, and I think I know the right kind of a spell to recite to make the thing fade away. Of course, one can't be sure, but we can always take a chance. It's invisible. I knew it would be. But there's a powder in this long-distance sprayer that might make it show up for a second. Later on, we'll try it. It's a frightful thing to have alive, but it isn't as bad as what Wilbur would have let in if he'd lived longer. You'll never know what the world has escaped. Now we've only this one thing to fight, and it can't multiply. It can, though, do a lot of harm, so we mustn't hesitate to rid the community of it. We must follow it, and the way to begin is to go to the place that has just been wrecked. Let somebody lead the way. I don't know your roads very well, but I've an idea there might be a shorter cut across lots. How about it? The men shuffled about for a moment, and then Earl Sawyer spoke softly, pointing with a grimy finger through the steadily lessening rain. I guess you can get to Seth Bishop's quickest by cutting across the lower meadow here, wading the brook at the low place and climbing through Carrier's mowing and the timber lot beyond. That comes about on the upper road, mightily nigh Seth's, a little t'other side. Armitage, with Rice and Morgan, started to walk in the direction indicated, and most of the natives followed slowly. The sky was growing lighter, and there were signs that the storm had worn itself away. When Armitage inadvertently took a wrong direction, Joe Osborne warned him and walked ahead to show the right one. Courage and confidence were mounting, though the twilight of the almost perpendicular wooded hill which lay toward the end of their shortcut, and among whose fantastic ancient trees they had to scramble as if up a ladder, put these qualities to a severe test. At length they emerged on a muddy road to find the sun coming out. 
They were a little beyond the Seth Bishop place, but bent trees and hideously unmistakable tracks showed what had passed by. Only a few minutes were consumed in surveying the ruins just around the bend. It was the Fry incident all over again, and nothing dead or living was found in either of the collapsed shells which had been the Bishop house and barn. No one cared to remain there amid the stench and the tarry stickiness, but all turned instinctively to the line of horrible prints leading on toward the wrecked Waddley farmhouse and the altar-crowned slopes of Sentinel Hill. As the men passed the site of Wilbur Waddley's abode, they shuddered visibly and seemed again to mix hesitancy with their zeal. It was no joke tracking down something as big as a house that one could not see, but that had all the vicious malevolence of a demon. Opposite the base of Sentinel Hill the tracks left the road, and there was a fresh bending and matting visible along the broad swath marking the monster's former route to and from the summit. Armitage produced a pocket telescope of considerable power and scanned the steep green side of the hill. Then he handed the instrument to Morgan, whose sight was keener. After a moment of gazing, Morgan cried out sharply, passing the glass to Earl Sawyer and indicating a certain spot on the slope with his finger. Sawyer, as clumsy as most non-users of optical devices are, fumbled a while but eventually focused the lenses with Armitage's aid. When he did so, his cry was less restrained than Morgan's had been. God almighty! The grass and bushes is a moving. It's a going up, slow like, creeping up to the top this minute. Heaven only knows what fur. Then the germ of panic seemed to spread among the seekers. It was one thing to chase the nameless entity, but quite another to find it. Spells might be all right, but suppose they weren't. Voices began questioning Armitage about what he knew of the thing, and no reply seemed quite to satisfy. Everyone seemed to feel himself in close proximity to phases of nature and of being utterly forbidden, and wholly outside the same experience of mankind. Part 10 In the end, the three men from Arkham, old white-bearded Dr. Armitage, Stocky, iron-gray Professor Rice, and lean, youngish Dr. Morgan ascended the mountain alone. After much patient instruction regarding its focusing and use, they left the telescope with the frightened group that remained in the road, and as they climbed they were watched closely by those among whom the glass was passed around. It was hard going, and Armitage had to be helped more than once. High above the toiling group, the great swath trembled as its hellish maker repassed with snail-like deliberateness. Then it was obvious that the pursuers were gaining. Curtis Watley, of the undecayed branch, was holding the telescope when the Arkham party detoured radically from the swath. He told the crowd that the men were evidently trying to get to a subordinate peak which overlooked the swath at a point considerably ahead of where the shrubbery was now bending. This indeed proved to be true, and the party was seen to gain the minor elevation only a short time after the invisible blasphemy had passed it. 
Then Wesley Corey, who had taken the glass, cried out that Armitage was adjusting the sprayer which Rice held, and that something must be about to happen. The crowd stirred uneasily, recalling that this sprayer was expected to give the unseen horror a moment of visibility. Two or three men shut their eyes, but Curtis Watley snatched back the telescope and strained his vision to the utmost. He saw that Rice, from the party's point of vantage above and behind the entity, had an excellent chance of spreading the potent powder with marvelous effect. Those without the telescope saw only an instant's flash of gray cloud, a cloud about the size of a moderately large building near the top of the mountain. Curtis, who had held the instrument, dropped it with a piercing shriek into the ankle-deep mud of the road. He reeled, and would have crumpled to the ground had not two or three others seized and steadied him. All he could do was moan half inaudibly. Oh, oh, great God, that, that. There was a pandemonium of questioning, and only Henry Wheeler thought to rescue the falling telescope and wipe it clean of mud. Curtis was past all coherence, and even isolated replies were almost too much for him. <sighs> Bigger in the barn, all made of squirming ropes. A whole thing sort of shaped like a hen's egg, bigger than anything, with dozens of legs like hogsheads that have shut up when they step. Nothing solid about it, all like uh, jelly and made of separate wiggling ropes pushed close together, great bulging eyes all over it, ten or twenty mouths and trunks a sticking all out along the edges, big as stovepipes, and all a tossing and opening and shutting. Oh, all gray with kind of blue or purple rings oh god in heaven that half face on top this final memory whatever it was proved too much for poor curtis and he collapsed completely before he could say more fred farr and will hutchings carried him to the roadside and laid him on the damp grass henry wheeler trembling turned the rescued telescope on the mountains to see what he might through the lenses were discernible three tiny figures, apparently running toward the summit as fast as the steep incline allowed. Only these, nothing more. Then everyone noticed a strangely unseasonable noise in the deep valley behind, and even in the underbrush of Sentinel Hill itself. It was the piping of unnumbered whippoorwills and in their shrill chorus there seemed to lurk a note of tense and evil expectancy. Earl Sawyer now took the telescope and reported the three figures as standing on the topmost ridge, virtually level with the ultra-stone, but at a considerable distance from it. One figure, he said, seemed to be raising its hands above its head at rhythmic intervals, and, as Sawyer mentioned the circumstance, the crowd seemed to hear a faint, half-musical sound from the distance, as if a loud chant were accompanying the gestures. The weird silhouette on that remote peak must have been a spectacle of infinite grotesqueness and impressiveness, but no observer was in a mood for aesthetic appreciation. "'I guess he's saying the spell,' whispered Wheeler as he snatched back the telescope. The whippoorwills were piping wildly, and in a singularly curious irregular rhythm quite unlike that of the visible ritual. Suddenly, 
the sunshine seemed to lessen without the intervention of any discernible cloud it was a very peculiar phenomenon and was plainly marked by all a rumbling sound seemed brewing beneath the hills mixed strangely with a concordant rumbling which clearly came from the sky lightning flashed aloft and the wondering crowd looked in vain for the portents of storm the chanting of the men from arkham now became unmistakable and wheeler saw through the glass that they were all raising their arms in the rhythmic incantation from some farmhouse far away came the frantic barking of dogs the change in the quality of the daylight increased and the crowd gazed about the horizon in wonder a purplish darkness born of nothing more than a spectral deepening of the sky's blue pressed down upon the rumbling hills then the lightning flashed again somewhat brighter than before and the crowd fancied that it had showed a certain mistiness around the altar stone on the distant height no one however had been using the telescope at that instant the whippoorwills continued their irregular pulsation and the men of dunwich braced themselves tensely against some imponderable menace with which the atmosphere seemed surcharged without warning came those deep cracked raucous vocal sounds which will never leave the memory of the stricken group who heard them not from any human throat were they born for the organs of man can yield no such acoustic perversions rather one would have said they came from the pit itself had not their source been so unmistakably the altar stone on the peak it is almost erroneous to call them sounds at all since so much of their ghastly infrabased timbre spoke to dim seats of consciousness and terror far subtler than the ear yet one must do so since their form was indisputably though vaguely that of half-articulated words they were loud loud as the rumblings and the thunder above which they echoed yet did they come from no visible being and because imagination might suggest a conjectural source in the world of non-visible beings the huddled crowd of the mountain's base huddled still closer and winced as if in expectation of a blow rang the hideous croaking out of space black thing the speaking impulse seemed to falter here as if some frightful psychic struggle were going on henry wheeler strained his eye at the telescope but saw only the three grotesquely silhouetted human figures on the peak all moving their arms furiously in strange gestures as their incantation drew near its culmination from what black wells of acharontic fear or feeling from what unplumbed gulfs of extracosmic consciousness or obscure long latent heredity were those half-articulated thunder croakings drawn presently they began to gather renewed force and coherence as they grew in stark utter ultimate frenzy yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yaga ya ngaho ngaho ya ya help help father father but that was all the pallid group in the road still reeling at the indisputably english syllables that had poured thickly and thunderously down from the frantic vacancy beside that shocking altar stone were never to hear such syllables again instead they jumped violently at the terrific report which seemed to rend the hills the deafening cataclysmic peal whose source be it inner earth or sky no hearer was ever able to place a single lightning bolt shot from the purple zenith to the altar stone and a great tidal wave of viewless force and indescribable stench swept down from the hill to all the countryside trees grass and underbrush were whipped into a fury and the frightened crowd at the mountain's base weakened by the lethal fetter that seemed about to asphyxiate them were almost hurled off their feet dogs howled from the distance green grass and foliage wilted to a curious sickly yellow-gray and over field and forest were scattered the bodies of dead whippoorwills the stench left quickly but the vegetation never came right again to this day there is something queer and unholy about the growths on and around that fearsome hill curtis whatley was only just regaining consciousness when the arkham men came slowly down the mountain in the beams of a sunlight once more brilliant and untainted they were grave and quiet and seemed shaken by memories and reflections even more terrible than those which had reduced the group of natives to a state of cowed quivering in reply to a jumble of questions they only shook their heads and reaffirmed one vital fact the thing has gone forever armitage said it has been split up into what it was originally made of and can never exist again it was an impossibility in a normal world only the least fraction was really matter in any sense we know it was like its father and most of it has gone back to him in some vague realm or dimension outside our material universe some vague abyss out of which only the most accursed rites of human blasphemy could ever have called him for a moment on the hills there was a brief silence and in that pause the scattered senses of poor curtis wadley began to knit back into a sort of continuity so that he put his hands to his head with a moan memory seemed to pick itself up where it had left off and the horror of the sight that had prostrated him burst in upon him again oh oh my god that half face that half face on top of it that face with the red eyes and crinkly albino hair and no chin like the wadley's it was a octopus centipede spider kind of thing but there was a half-shaped man's face on top of it and it looked like wizard Watley's, only it was yards and yards across he paused exhausted as the whole group of natives stared in bewilderment not quite crystallized into fresh terror 
only old zebulon Watley, who wonderingly remembered ancient things but who had been silent heretofore spoke aloud fifteen years gone he rambled i heerd old Watley say as how some day we'd hear a child of lavinia's a-callin its father's name on top of sentinel hill but joe osborne interrupted him to question the arkham men anew what was it anyhow and however did young wizard Watley call it out of the air it come from armitage chose his words carefully it was well it was mostly a kind of force that doesn't belong in our part of space a kind of force that acts and grows and shapes itself by other laws than those of our sort of nature we have no business calling in such things from outside and only very wicked people and very wicked cults ever try to there was some of it in wilbur Watley himself enough to make a devil and a precocious monster of him and to make his passing out a pretty terrible sight i'm going to burn his accursed diary and if you men are wise you'll dynamite that altar stone up there and pull down all the rings of standing stones on the other hills things like that brought down the beings those Watleys were so fond of the beings they were going to let in tangibly to wipe out the human race drag the earth off to some nameless place for some nameless purpose but as to this thing we've just sent back the Watleys raised it for a terrible part in the doings that were to come it grew fast and big and for the same reason that wilbur grew fast and big but it beat him because it had a greater share of the outsideness in it you needn't ask how wilbur called it out of the air he didn't call it out it was his twin brother but it looked more like the father than he did end of the dunwich horror by h p lovecraft